time for Legally Speaking, joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, always good to be here. What is on the docket today? Because I have had some fiery conversations, Michael, this week with various members of the public with respect to the legality and indeed the morality of mandating COVID-19 vaccinations. What does the law say about that? Well, uh, this is what it says. In British Columbia, uh, we've got a, an act called the Public Health Act. Uh, and there are two particular sections of that, well, perhaps more, but two uh, particularly relevant sections. There is one section that people should be aware of is Section 15 of the Public Health Act. And Section 15 of the Public Health Act says this, a person must not willingly cause a health hazard or act in a manner that the person knows or ought to know will cause a health hazard. Hmm. Um, and so to do otherwise would be to commit an offense. And so people should be aware that if they're behaving in a fashion which is creating a health hazard or they ought to know would create a health hazard, which makes it a uh, objective thing, even if the person claimed to subjectively not think that they are causing some hazard by, you know, for example, being unvaccinated and being in close contact with other people, there is um, an argument that they would be in violation of Section 15 of the Public Health Act with nothing more being done. That's hmm. a general obligation all of us have. Hmm. There are also specific provisions, including in Section 16 of the Public Health Act, uh, that permit the government to order people to be vaccinated. Um, and it is in a list of various preventative measures that Section 16 permits the government to impose, the first of which is being treated or vaccinated. Uh, various other things are uh, permitted as well, taking preventative medication, washing, you know, doing undergoing disinfection, yes. uh, wearing types of clothing. So that would be like the mask. You can clearly regulate that you put on a mask or be vaccinated. Yes. Um, now, I should say in that regard, there is a provision in the Public Health Act for a person to object uh, to those kinds of measures um, for reasons of conscience, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, or if they have a belief that they're going to harm their health. But what the way that is dealt with is that a person who so objects uh, can still be subject to a prohibition uh, on going to a place or doing a thing that's prohibited by the regulations. And so what that would permit would be something like what's going on in uh, Quebec, uh, New York City, uh, France, uh, various other places where whereby the government could say, for example, uh, I direct everyone to be vaccinated uh, if you wish to enter restaurants or concerts or museums or public spaces or the university, for example, Yes. Um, or university for in-person classes. And you could have somebody making an objection to the vaccination, but the result of that uh, could be simply you just can't go to those places, which is how it's going to be dealt with in uh, New York City and France and Quebec, and I suspect other places as well. Uh, and the, the way they're dealing with it is, look, if you choose not to get vaccinated, you're uh, creating a hazard for other people uh, when you're in close quarters. And so you're simply not going to be able to uh, participate in those kinds of activities. Um, and you can see that coming uh, in Canada. The government announced, I think just yesterday, the federal government uh, that there are going to be vaccine passports, which are intended for international travel. Uh, most other countries are going to require proof of vaccination if you wish to get into them. Uh, Canada does, of course, right? We don't, uh, we're not allowing unvaccinated tourists to uh, show up here, but we're now 
starting the process of allowing people who are vaccinated to come here. And so in order to facilitate uh, Canadians being able to go to other countries who have similar requirements, um, the federal government has announced they're going to uh, provide uh, for uh, sort of a common certification of that so other countries could uh, be confident that the uh, vaccination was real. Um, and they've indicated that provinces, if they wished, uh, would be able to make use of those federal vaccine passports uh, for other purposes. And so Quebec, I think, was starting with their own provincial process, but it seems likely that uh, that will wind up getting folded into the federal one. Uh, and that will be uh, the state of affairs uh, in a growing number of places, right? If you yes. uh, object to taking measures to keep other people safe, uh, you, you may well find yourself unable to uh, congregate uh, in, in a way and in uh, places where uh, that may uh, present an increased risk to other people. Um, and of course, that's ordinarily the, the line in which, uh, uh, over which the government would quite reasonably have the capacity to regulate people's activity, mm-hmm. right? If you, if you wish to sit at home uh, and uh, not be vaccinated, you probably don't pose much of a risk to people, right? Indeed, yes. Sick, perhaps healthcare, perhaps healthcare workers or something. If you do get sick, but um, you know, it, it seems to be uh, seems to me, given all of the information we have, um, if you're somebody who chooses not to be vaccinated and then tries to uh, show up in close quarters with other people, uh, there's a, I think, a readily identifiable risk you're posing to others. Uh, and that's the point at which, of course, uh, the government, uh, I think, can legitimately uh, intervene, not just to protect you, but to protect other people from uh, harm you might inflict, right? It's, yeah. it's, um, you know, you, you've got a perfect right to sit at home and drink all the alcohol you want, uh, but uh, you don't have the right to then hop in your car and drive around town because that's the point at which you're posing a risk to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's ordinarily the uh, standard that the government's going to apply when deciding whether to regulate activity. So it seems like a clear uh, trend. We already have the legislation in place in British Columbia. It doesn't require any legislative uh, changes. Uh, The government could uh, implement that uh, tomorrow if they wished. Um, uh, And, uh, you know, we can clearly see a trend happening in other countries and places. And so uh, it seems likely that we're going to be hearing more of um, Section 15 and 16 of the Public Health Act uh, likely over the next uh, number of weeks and months, uh, once everyone's had uh, a full opportunity to get um, vaccinated uh, in order to deal with the small number of people that are um, resisting that so as to prevent them from uh, engaging in activity that uh, poses a risk to other people. So, and, indeed, and, and uh, also themselves. Uh, now, I wanted to ask you about Section 15, willingly cause a health hazard or act in a manner that a person knows or ought to know will cause a health hazard. There's a word, I don't know how to pronounce it, Michael, because I've only ever read it in a book. Is it scienter, a legal term about intent or knowledge of wrongdoing? Well, in this particular section, right, it, it uses this language, knows or ought to know. Yeah, right? so how do you so decide how they really- ought to know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that would be referred to from a legal perspective as sort of an objective test rather than a subjective one. So the purpose there is that if you were prosecuting somebody for breaching Section 15 of the Public Health Act, uh, you wouldn't need to prove, and indeed it wouldn't be a defense if the person simply said, I didn't know that COVID was transmissible, Mm -hmm. right? that that wouldn't do it. Okay. Uh, the the issue would be: Are you would you ought to have known that you were causing a health hazard? So let's imagine somebody is told, uh, "Okay, you've just been tested for COVID. You came back positive, right?" 
if the person claimed, well, I had no idea that was a problem, I decided to then go to the restaurant downtown and <laughs> cough up a storm. Um, I think in the current climate with sort of, you know, the saturation media coverage over this issue, you'd have a pretty tough time arguing that uh, somebody in that circumstance wouldn't at least meet the objective criteria of ought to know that you're causing a health hazard, um, right? I, I think in 2021, yeah. um, if you had some reason to think that you were infected and you decided to go and um, get in close contact with other people, um, I, I think you're captured by Section 15. And I should say, Section 15 is in force. That's not a matter of might the government implement that or might they not implement it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is currently and right now um, you're committing an offense if you act in a manner that you know or ought to know will cause a health hazard. And frankly, there would be a an argument to be made about that section currently in terms of uh, somebody who was uh, uh, refusing to get vaccinated and to continuing to go out in public, right? If you're sitting at home, I don't yeah. see how you're causing a particular hazard to anyone. But somebody who says, I'm not doing it and I insist upon uh, getting in close quarters with other people, um, I think uh, there at least is some argument that you're breaching Section 15. Uh, but uh, I think what we're going to see is Section 16 and probably uh, some form of specific orders like is going like are going on in other uh, places. Um, it, it seems to me a pretty challenging argument, uh, a challenging circumstance if vaccines are widely available, freely available to everyone, and everyone's had lots of time to to get them. Uh, to have some people say, I refuse to do that, and I still wish to show up in close quarters with other people uh, in a circumstance which you know, science would tell us poses a risk uh, not only to themselves, but to other people, both vaccinated and unvaccinated, because, of course, the vaccines aren't 100% effective. Um, And so uh, when you have somebody who says, look, I insist upon that kind of behavior, uh, it seems to me that this provisions that we currently have uh, may well uh, be implemented like they're being implemented in all of these other uh, jurisdictions. So it seems to me that's uh, clearly on the horizon, and we see it. Uh, being implemented in in many other places currently. Very well. All right, let's take our first break. Michael Mulligan will continue offering us the benefit of his legal analysis and insight on these matters, legally speaking, continuing right after this commercial break. Back on the air with CFAX 1070, continuing our conversation with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. What's next on the agenda, Michael? Pepper spray. Pepper spray. (laughs) Two words. Uh, Now, I should say, I think this is a topic that people should be aware of, uh, because the the law surrounding the possession of pepper spray is a bit ambiguous, Mm -hmm. uh, and the consequences of having it, or having a type of it, or in circumstances where you shouldn't, can be severe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, there's both a recent case about it, uh, and uh, some effort in uh, Alberta to change the law surrounding pepper spray. And so, the place to start is that in Canada, we've got regulations that set out weapons that are prohibited. They would include things like machine guns, flamethrowers, switchblades, brass knuckles, and indeed pepper spray. Uh Um, And the particular regulation defines it this way. It says any device that is designed to be used for the purpose of injuring, immobilizing, or otherwise incapacitating any person by the discharge thereof of various things, uh-huh. any liquid spray powder or other substance that's capable of injuring or immobilizing or incapacitating a person. That is the definition or the substance definition that prohibits that uh, person from having that. And so the mere possession uh, of uh, a 
uh, pepper spray, which is for the purpose of uh, uh, that, for that purpose, is a crime. Hmm. It would be like possessing a machine gun or a switchblade. Uh, and in that regard, I should say that particular offense of possessing a prohibited weapon theoretically carries a maximum penalty of up to 10 years. And wow. that is significant under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, because what that means is that if you're convicted of that offense, even if the judge gave you a, a fine or something, right, as a result of it, it is considered serious criminality under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, which can lead to automatic deportation for somebody who's not a Canadian citizen. And so a woman carrying mace in her purse uh, that meets the definition of a prohibited weapon could find herself deported without a hearing uh, if convicted of that offense. And so it can have major unforeseen consequences for people. Now, that definition is an interesting one because you might say to yourself, what about bear spray? Yes, <laughs> indeed. indeed the, the Court of Appeal had to struggle with exactly that issue uh, in terms of, well, what about, uh, you know, why is this a prohibited weapon and where does bear spray fit into it? Hmm. Uh, or, you know, a coyote deterrent or something else. Yeah, yeah. Indeed, to deter is not necessarily to incapacitate. Interesting. Okay. So the way the Court of Appeal has addressed that is they've talked, to, they've focused on the language here of that regulation that I referenced. And it has to do with the purpose uh, that the device was designed for. And so even though bear spray might be exactly the same substance that would be in mace, right? Yes. One is designed for the purpose of protecting you against a bear, right? It would say, you know, bear deterrent and might be in a big can, whereas the very same substance could be contained in something else labeled self-defense spray. One is prohibited, the other is not. Um, and so even though a very similar thing may not be a prohibited weapon, that is how the regulation is worded. And so you are permitted to have bear spray, for example, to go hiking in the woods. That's not uh, a, a prohibited weapon. But I should say this, don't think that, oh, that'll be fine then. I'll just get a big can of something labeled bear spray and carry that around in my purse. Indeed. Because the uh, prohibition on possessing a prohibited weapon is not the only prohibition in the criminal code. There okay. are other sections, which would include carrying a concealed weapon, mm -hmm. that's a crime, mm -hmm. uh, or possession of a weapon for a dangerous purpose, that's a crime. And then in that, those kinds of circumstances, it would turn on, why do you have that, right? If you have the thing labeled bear spray and you're out hiking in Banff, right, there's probably not going to be a whole lot of question about why you've got that in mm -hmm. your backpack, for example. Yes. But if you've got the very same thing in your purse at a bar um, and you've got it for the purpose of self-defense, now suddenly what you're carrying around there is a weapon, right? It's the difference between having a knife in your pocket for fishing and having your knife in, a knife in your pocket in case you get into an altercation in the bar. You can't carry a concealed weapon, right? You can carry a fishing implement, though, and so it would turn on why you've got it. And the why you've got it could turn on things like the circumstances or how, in fact, somebody did use the thing, or in some cases, what a person says about it, right? Police officer says, why do you have that? Oh, that's just for self-defense. Well, <laughs> you just told me it's a weapon. <laughs> I was right? going to say, yeah. why do you, call why your do lawyer. You yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why do you have that? Fishing. <laughs> okay, well, that doesn't seem to be a weapon, right? Although, I guess it might lead to other questions if your fishing trip was in a downtown bar. Yes. Now... I should tell you, there's a recent case out of Vancouver 
that, and oh, I should say this, Alberta made a suggestion just last month to the federal government asking them to remove pepper spray from the list of prohibited weapons in the regulation. Interesting. And they made that suggestion on the basis that uh, women and uh, minorities ought to be able to carry it as a self-defense tool. Mm-hmm. Um, the federal government responded negatively <laughs> to that suggestion, and so there was, in fact, no change despite Alberta's request. Um, and the other case I wanted to mention, sentencing case, which just came out, perhaps informs that decision. Uh, it involves pepper spray. Uh, And this was a sentencing case that just came down out of Vancouver. Uh, And the fact pattern there was that a couple of uh, people were off Christmas shopping. One was an 86-year-old man. Another was a 57-year-old man with a 16-year-old daughter. They wound up having some minor altercation, some alleged elbow bumping or something going through the door. Maybe they were rushing for the sale item or something. Who Mm -hmm. knows? But the um, 86-year-old man pulled out a can of mace that he'd been wearing around his neck uh, and repeatedly pepper sprayed the 57-year-old man in the face, also hitting a 16-year-old daughter. (laughs) I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. That's just so shocking. Wow. (laughs) The the 57-year-old was partially blinded, uh, but stumbled about. The 86-year-old started to walk away. The 57-year-old followed him for 17 feet and pushed him with both hands in the back. The 86-year-old oh, no. fell over, hit oh, no. his head, oh, no. and died. Oh. And so 57-year-old man was charged with manslaughter. Yeah. Um, and a jury convicted him. Wow. Uh, the manslaughter doesn't require uh, an intent to kill, right? It requires an unlawful act, which is dangerous, and it, it has the effect of causing somebody's death. And the analysis the jury would have had to follow to convict uh, the 57-year-old would be that because the 86-year-old, even though he had provoked him by pepper spraying him in the face, um, had walked away. And so at that point, when the 57-year-old was responding by coming and pushing him, he wasn't defending himself, right? He was getting back at, presumably, the 86-year-old for having pepper sprayed him. Perhaps understandable, but not a defense. And so he was convicted by the jury. And then that led to the judge having to decide, you know, what sentence is to be imposed on the 57-year-old man convicted by the jury of manslaughter. And the judge went through a series of cases that I think could be fairly described as a series of unfortunate events, which led to other manslaughter convictions. One was a person who pushed somebody else who fell into oncoming traffic and got hit by a bus. Mm. Another case was a fight over a spilled beer, uh, where there was some punch that caused the person to die. Uh, another one was a uh, man who swore at the uh, uh, person at a bar uh, and uh, he got punched once and head injury and dead. Wow. And so there's this whole series of sort of unfortunate events, sometimes referred to as one-punch manslaughter cases yes. as a group. And so the judge analyzed all of those uh, decisions and the sentences that were imposed and so uh, in the case that I'm referring to from Costco, the net result for the 57-year-old father um, who got pepper sprayed and pushed the man uh, is that he's been sentenced to 18 months in jail, uh, followed by two years of probation and community work service, despite the fact that the 57-year-old was described as a, by the judge as a loving husband and father, a person of good character uh, with nothing in his background that indicated a propensity for violence. And so... 
you know, it's one of those sentences, those are tough cases, right, where you, yeah. you know, you have to scratch their head about, look, there's this tragic result, uh, and, you know, there's every indication the 57-year-old was completely, you know, beside himself with the um, fact that this man had died. He described The judge described him as having deep remorse for what the fact that this man had died, and even though the fact the 86-year-old had clearly committed an assault by pepper spraying a 57-year-old in the face. Yes. Um, you know, so much of sentencing involves this sort of uh, assessment of consequence. Yeah. And so, you know, even though in some other circumstance, if I think if the uh, man had uh, pushed the I pepper sprayed him and nothing had befallen him, uh-huh. nothing would have occurred. No. Right? In fact, yeah. probably would have arrested and charged the 86-year-old with having committed an assault by pepper spraying somebody over a elbow bump. Correct. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so much of these things depend on consequence. And here, the unfortunate consequence was he fell down and passed away. Uh, and so the uh, he's uh, family lost a grandfather, uh, and uh, the 57-year-old will be sitting in jail at public expense for a number of months, uh, not acting as a father or doing other things that apparently everything else in his life is pretty positive. Uh, and so uh, I guess perhaps that informed the uh, federal government to say just say no to the uh, Alberta proposal that we ought to uh, legalize pepper spray uh, and uh, encourage people to wear it around their necks lest they get into some confrontation. Uh, so there it is. Be careful with your pepper spray. Absolutely. Michael Mulligan, thank you as always for the benefit of your knowledge and insight, legally speaking, every week during the second half of our second hour on a Thursday. We'll talk to you next week. Always a pleasure. Stay safe. You too. Bye now.